Magazines are not going anywhere. The magazines of today are not like the magazines of two years ago. That's the, the, the beauty of magazines, that they are a changing platform. That's when I laugh when people tell me new media. I said, every time I get a new copy of a magazine, it's a new media. Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. And I'm Peter Houston. And it's just a two-hander this week as Esther and her husband, Mike, uh, welcomed into the world Emily Anna Thorpe on the 25th. So congratulations to both of them. On the birth of your beautiful daughter, we can confirm she's got very cute cheeks. Uh, That clip you just heard was from my interview with, wait for it, Dr. Samir Husni, founder and director of the Magazine Innovation Centre at the University of Mississippi's School of Journalism and New Media. You probably know him better as Mr. Magazine. We talked about his 37-year career in teaching, teaching magazines specifically, the wild ride that was magazine publishing in 2020, his print evangelism, the benefits that digital brings, and, wait for that, his favourite magazine. That is an exclusive. I mean, that's got to be like winning the Oscars. But it was fun, actually. It was really good. And speaking of the Oscars, over 100 podcasts have made the shortlist for the second year of our Publisher Podcast Awards. Boom. (laughs) So new categories for this year include Best Coronavirus Podcast, obviously, Best Launch, which has been really exciting, and Best Commercial Strategy, which has been a fascinating insight into the business of podcasts as well. (laughs) I love that Best Coronavirus. (laughs) It absolutely makes sense, but it's just weird. So the winners are going to be revealed in a virtual celebration on Wednesday the 21st of April. This year we're experimenting with a pay-what-you-want ticketing model, trying to ensure that nobody's excluded on the basis of affordability, really an extension of our entire ethos with the awards themselves. So in addition to that, there are print programs and gift boxes available for UK attendees to allow them to celebrate from the safety of their own homes. So please do go to publisherpodcastawards.com to check out that entire shortlist and to purchase your tickets for what's sure to be the virtual event of the year. Well, before, well, God, a couple of months before that, actually, we should do the news in brief for this week. And before <laughs> oh, <really>? the, <laughs> so before we started recording, we were saying there's basically been nothing that has dominated the news agenda this week. There's been a lot of big stories, and we're going to go through them. Lots of acquisitions and revelations about social, but really nothing has been like the big media story of the week. First and foremost, of which is Twitter is getting into the long-form content game by buying Review, which is an email newsletter service, which actually we use to put out our daily newsletter. You know, well, the subscription game as well, I guess. Twitter getting into a way of making money that's not advertising. Yeah. Led. Uh, I mean, we, we use Review. We use the Review platform, and it's great. It's a really simple, easy-to-use newsletter platform. This actually took me totally by surprise because... Yeah, I know what you mean. It does, on the face of it, it makes sense for them. The kind of the initial release from the co-founder of Review was basically saying, well, Twitter's going to use their network to direct people to these long-form newsletters after the fact, but they're also going to include a lot of subscription options specifically for Twitter users. So there is a lot that's good there from kind of the Twitter perspective. From a user perspective, they also immediately offered better terms. They're offering sort of a 5% cut on any subscription revenue. And we got, we, we got a rebate. We got a rebate of like, uh, what? Is what seven pence each or something? <laughs> yeah, about that. Thirty-one cents for the, for the rest of our like for the rest of the year. 
but I, I don't know. It seems. I, I still think I, I. You know, this is a great move for Twitter buy and review, and review must be cocked a hoop. But here's the thing: is anyone who's really focused on creating content on Twitter going to make the move to doing a newsletter? Um, Hansel's on a postcard. Yeah, that's a big one. It's a weird. There's a weird kind of circle of life thing here. You know, if you start a newsletter. You use Twitter to promote that newsletter. Mm. If you're big on Twitter, are you going to start a newsletter to bolster your Twitter content? But the the question then is, you know, who is actually going to take up this review option as opposed to a Substack or kind of we spoke about it last week, Forbes's new, I suppose, business oriented mid size. Uh, newsletter contributor network. Yeah, that's a. Di- I guess that's a different thing. Because but... It, yeah, it's a. But it's like these constant new points of differentiation between Substack review, and as they all, you know, as everyone pumps money into them, what is going to be the big draw for people? Is it going to be that you know five percent cut that reviews taking that Twitter and review are taking? Yeah. Is well, it going to be ease of use? Is it UX? Okay, let's figure out the USP for each of these things. Right. Forbes USP is definitely the kind of author benefit type thing. So you've got the credibility of the brand. You've got the support that they've said that they're going to give authors in terms of admin and and benefits, I guess. And then you've got their their distribution at that that kind of magazine brand, media brand level scale. Mm -hmm. Substack is Substack. It's, um, you know, the, the platform is all in place to charge people and for, for paid newsletters to be developed off of that platform more reliant on the profile of the newsletter creator than anything Substack brings to it and then review inside this Twitter deal is really looking maybe at the Twitter distribution side of things the actual scale of distribution that you can get through the social network in which case, expect there to be a flurry of complaints from people when their <laughs> newsfeed changes again. I also think, you know, eventually, it's like everything, and there? there's, there's this peak, what it peak newsletter type thing, and all these platforms join in, and then eventually they fall by the wayside, or there's a, there's a, a consolidation or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see where the, the newsletter space ends up. Yeah, definitely. It's like that that phrase, nature abhors a vacuum, but it feels like the internet abhors having more than like two big providers for any one thing. So moving on, there was an article earlier in the week uh, explaining how Nextdoor, which has you know primarily been used to complain about your neighbours. I was going to um, say, is Nextdoor not like just this trolling platform? Pretty much, yeah. Postcode? In fact, in the newsletter this week, I, I linked to Best of Nextdoor, the Twitter account, which is just a gold mine of people complaining about the neighbours, very <laughs> passag posts about stuff like, whose crow is this? <laughs> and stuff like that. But there's, um, but so, the, yeah, this article came out, and it's a really, really in-depth uh, explainer. It's written by Will Oramus on 10.medium.com, and it's effectively a potted history of how Nextdoor is quietly replacing the small-town paper in the U.S., and off the back of that, I thought, well, that's unusual. We don't really have, we have Nextdoor in the UK, but we don't really use it for that. But then I saw so many people anecdotally on Twitter saying, yeah, you know what? Actually, we were checking Nextdoor for just like local updates, which do equate to local news. 
Isn't the, isn't the pro, yeah, I get that. I absolutely can see how the infrastructure works in that way or could work in that way. The issue that I kind of have with this is who owns that? Who takes responsibility for it? <laughs> so that's part of the, that, that's part of the article basically saying that their moderation teams, which were basically just yeah. like designed to stop actual racial abuse, are now having to make judgment calls about what is the truth on next door of all things. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just think there there's definitely something here, but we're we're still at the kind of just crawled out of the mud stage of the evolution <laughs> of this thing. Yeah. It's only just managed to breathe in the air. What was the what was the one we we t- spoke about in the newsletter a couple of weeks ago? News News Blast, the kind of this um, the a local new, yeah the app local news app that was basically saying well we want to get publishers in our ecosystem because I, I, I kind of see more strength in that because there is the ownership there's you know for ownership read responsibility mm. um, you know someone makes money but they're also taking responsibility for for the content and so on because well, let's face it. Ordinary local. Have you ever been on your local Facebook web like uh, news group? No. That's horrendous. <laughs> I mean, it's what I live in a Tory constituency, so it's even worse. <laughs> um, it's just these nut cases. So that's, I suppose, that's the problem as well because you've got to consider the context in which this news is going to get presented. Like you said, like you don't want your local newspaper's content appearing next to abuse. Where I live, I'm a, I'm considered a minority. Because I'm, I'm Scottish. Scottish. <laughs> I don't know. I think you know. There's there is definitely something about this kind of social infrastructure driving local news services. But some somehow somewhere there's got to be some level of ownership taken on it. Can I can I just read you? I think my favourite paragraph from the from the post. <laughs> which exemplifies everything we've just been saying. A problem more specific to Nextdoor is that, even more so than some other social networks, naming no names, the platform makes it hard for users to distinguish truth from untruth. You can post an image, but the majority of posts are text only, and posting a link to another website doesn't unfurl any preview. As a result, facts cited in support of users' opinions often come sans citation. It's Presumably... Fact. It's facts and inverted commas. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. The site's unpaid moderators are not always well equipped to settle these feuds. <laughs> this is. Do you remember there was that really good story about um, Facebook moderators getting burnt out and PTSD effectively oh, from yeah. having to What's troll through all this case, kind of stuff? Case Newton yeah, Casey Newton did that. Effectively, it's a you know volunteer mod situation. Them having to decide the stuff that Facebook, after years of this issue, can't mm. get its head round. Have you ever stood at the, on the sidelines at a local kids' football game? <laughs> yeah. You know, this, just, this is just that <laughs> online. Uh, I think, you know, that, that so the, there was a whole section of this in Cairncross, wasn't there, about, in the Cairncross review about supporting local news at this kind of level? Yeah. And I think, God forbid, I can't believe I'm actually suggesting that. I think there's got to be some kind of local authority mm. or or local or government type regulation around this kind of thing. I don't know. I've, I've, you know what? I've said that. I almost want you to edit it out because <laughs> I, I can see how horrible that's going to get. So 
A new report from, among others, friend of Media Voices, Jasper Jackson, has demonstrated that in contrast, stark contrast, to Facebook's claims to the UK government, it has provided pages with the ability to monetize misinformation. The Guardian article from which we're taking a lot of this, though, is also published in longer form on the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, highlights uh, anti-vax misinformation, which is rife. It's wide rife on Facebook. I think it's important that this stuff is investigated, but... I can't say I'm surprised by it, by any of it. I think it's the fact that, okay, we can all see that the outrage engine is making money for Facebook. We've known that for a long, long time. God, not just Facebook, yeah. But I think it's the fact that, you know, one of the things that they're focused on in this investigation is that these, well, on one level, nut jobs, (laughs) and on another level, cynical bastards Mm. are making money from this misinformation directly, and and Facebook, the in, Facebook's infrastructure supporting that. Yeah. Oh, and that's a kind of, that's a depressing part about it. It's not to say that Facebook's been kind of this, the only beneficiary of this rise in misinformation. So the article on Press Gazette uh, saying that the largest growth in traffic over the last year has been to far-right sites with, let's say, a loose relationship to the truth. They highlight uh, the Daily Epoch, which is, um, again, it's kind of a, a hotbed Epoch. of... Epoch, uh, the Daily Epoch, which is a hotbed of vaccine misinformation again, and it's also very pro-Trump. It's almost as though there's a crossover there. <laughs> what? Who knew? <laughs> I, you know what? <laughs> you feel sorry for? I don't know. You feel I sorry for the Daily feel, Epoch. I feel sorry for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> no, I absolutely don't feel sorry for Trump. Um, I didn't read this article. I specifically went out of my way not I made a decision <laughs> because I knew it would just infuriate me. Yeah. The, I have to say, the, the Press Gazette is doing some great stuff around these kind of... I don't want to call them list stories because that does them down, but they're doing a great job around researching what's biggest, what's longest. Yeah, they're, what's, they're data stories, really. Yeah, they're, they're doing a really good job on it. Well, maybe the outrage engine will slow down a little bit now that he's gone off to play golf or whatever. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so the Trump bump isn't over yet, um, but cable networks in the US are cutting back on contributors who were dedicated to the last president. And I've seen some of the the quotes in there are fantastic. There's basically people saying, I feel like I'm feral. Like, I cannot be... These contributors feel like they cannot be released back into humane society anymore because they spent so long covering a completely deranged, demented government. They have to be deprogrammed. It's like it's like coming out of a cult. Yeah. They have to be deprogrammed so that they can rejoin polite society. Oh, God. There's a couple of good subscription stories as well here because Tortoise is nearing 50,000 paid-for subscribers... And the editor, James Harding, says that COVID-19 has really kick-started that business. <laughs> Jesus, that's yeah. an unfortunate phrase. That's, yeah, it's, that's like the ultimate silver lining, really, isn't it? Yeah. And here's another... Oh, actually, speaking of smart people, I want to know what you think of this. So Kenya's largest newspaper, The Daily Nation, is adopting a paywall. But the paywall is for any content that's more than seven days old. So you're effectively paying to access mm. the archive. So what do we think of that as a model? I know it's been done elsewhere, but I think this is really, really interesting. It's also kind of the first Kenyan national to do this. I'm trying to think what's the downside of that for them. I can see for the readers, it, it, it sort of protects their access to the to breaking news. Yeah. 
Um, what's the downside for the publisher? Is it? I is suppose it, they're losing focus on stories that you know people don't know anything about it. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, discovery will be an issue. Yeah. But there's also kind of this. I suppose from a published perspective, at least in the UK, you'd say that the the issue is that you're putting your most valuable content outside the paywall still, which is yeah. still a huge. That's like anathema to the Times and a bunch of the kind of the subscription driven ones over here. Yeah, I don't know about that one. That's an interesting one. I, yeah, I mean, I, I've uh, the the idea of monetizing archives. I find fascinating. And finally, Trump may be gone, but the anti-media sentiment isn't going anywhere, even in the UK, because a government minister has falsely accused a reporter from the Huffington Post of spreading misinformation, prompting an official complaint from Huffington Post. Did you see any of this? Yeah, it was pathetic. It was. It was really weird. I think what was... what was I mean, she owned herself at the beginning of it. Yeah. She said, I got sent an email answer, asking me these questions. Um... But then didn't answer the questions. <laughs> but then took you know like an eight tweet thread to 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 sort of have a go at the the reporter who it wasn't even just having a go at the publication. She named the reporter. Yeah, and the it reporter eventually of, had to lock her Twitter account because yeah, of you know kind of this understandable abuse. Well, not understandable, but kind of you know understandable when you consider that basically she's been well, accused of com- yeah, completely, peddling misinformation. Yeah. Yeah, but also completely expected from these nutcases. <laughs> how do you... I don't understand how you hold a position in government and don't understand what being available for comment is. You're being asked for comment on something. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Okay, well, I think that goes right back. There's two things going on there. One, I don't know anything about this minister, but... I read this amazing theory that when you're 10 years into any government, mm. you're kind of at the taking who you can get stage. <laughs> yeah. So their experience or their, dare I say, competence, competence yeah. um, is, is possibly less than in when your first couple of years in government. But also, I mean, there is this... I don't know if it's a philosophy or an attitude or whatever, but it's like, let's deflect this back at anyone that's given us criticism. Yeah. They, they was... never seem to address the criticism anymore. No, they don't. They just deflect. And the problem is it's, it's definitely a winning strategy for a certain subset of the public who go, yeah, media's a bunch of lying bastards. Yeah, they're exactly. They're, they're um, predisposed to believe in it. Well, you only had what was that scum media tag? Oh think. yeah. Just thinking that this podcast has taken a wonderful shift to the left. Since <laughs> Esther is off looking after Emily. Well, she's she's usually our like reliable anchor to stop us doing <laughs> to stop us going that way. So this will be like this will be like the Canary podcast squat, <laughs> squat box by the time Ooh, we Never quite that far. Never quite that far. This week I spoke to Mr Magazine, Samir Husni. He told me about his teaching career, the changes in magazine publishing last year and the continued importance of magazines in society. But first, I asked him how he came to be Mr Magazine. Well, I mean, simply put, I'm the man who loves magazines. Uh, I fell in love with magazines when I was 11 years old. 
when I bought my first copy of Superman when it came to my original home country, Lebanon. And I wa walked from our apartment to the shop and picked up a copy of the first issue of Superman. And as I was crossing the street, flipping the pages, something happened to me. I mean, I just fell in love with the art of storytelling, flipping the pages, uh, having a hero, having a, uh, a villain all in one. And it was for the first time in my life, uh, I felt I was in control of the pace of the story, in control of the movement of the story. And I'm not depending on my father or grandfather to read me a story from the Bible, which was the only book we had at home. <laughs> and uh, from that moment, I've never looked back. I mean, now, I mean, I've been teaching for 37 years at the University of Mississippi. In 2009, I uh, created the Magazine Innovation Center to help amplify the future of print in a digital age. Because as you recall, in uh, 2009, everybody was saying like print is dead. And, and you know, we had the iPhone in 07, then we had the iPad in uh, 09. And everybody was saying, this is the future, this is the future. And uh, most people looked at me as like uh, this guy. I mean, he's so in love with magazines, he can see straight uh, that he's starting a center to amplify the future of print in a digital age. He must have lost his mind. Uh, what nobody knew uh, back then and, and uh, is that uh, I'm still continuing my hobby uh, that became my education, that became my profession. I mean, I tell my students every single day, I have never worked a day in my life. Yeah. I'm doing the exact same thing I did, collecting magazines, designing magazines, reading magazines, researching magazines. Since that first day, I bought that copy of Superman. Uh, so we, we, I started the center here uh, and uh, continued the research. I mean, the, the main goal for the Magazine Innovation Center is, is to help amplify the future of print in a digital age. Uh, and anybody that comes and visit me and see the amount of magazines and boxes of magazines in my office uh, will become a faithful follower uh, of the of, of the premise that print is not going anywhere and magazines are not going anywhere for for a very long time you've you've been one of the leading evangelists for print do you feel do you feel a little bit vindicated that well one print clearly hasn't gone away but actually we've just had probably one of the best years for print subscriptions in a very long time Indeed, and, and actually the, the vindiction came back in uh, 2016, I believe. Columbia Journalism Review wrote an article about uh, how print is the new new media. And they mentioned in it that this guy, Samir Hosni at the University of Mississippi, like started this magazine innovation center in 2009, which he always believed that print is going to be there. But with all the interviews I did last year and, and I published on my blog about uh, print during even a pandemic, uh, it was amazing to see how people returned to print. I mean, how people, uh, because of all the screen fatigue that they had, because of they were like in home, I mean, almost every publisher I spoke with have seen an increase in their print orders and in their subscriptions to their magazines. 
uh, I mean, like you mentioned, magazines are not going anywhere. I mean, if uh, they are changing, I mean, definitely the magazines of today are not like the magazines of uh, two years ago or not even like the magazines of a hundred years ago. And, and that's the, the, the beauty of magazines is that they are a changing platform. That's when I laugh when people tell me new media. I said, every time I get a new copy of a magazine, it's a new media. It's funny that you, that you mentioned the 100 years time because I know you, on your blog you published a thing about um, a magazine article around Christmas 100 years ago. I think one of the things that was interesting about that is that so much has changed and yet nothing has changed. You know, you talk about innovation, but you're also a historian. You're a magazine historian. Do you find that there's things that are, you can trace all the way back? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the more things change, the more things remain the same. I'm, I'm working on a new book now on all the magazines that were published in the United States on March 1953, the month I was born. I decided, right. I said, look, okay, so Mr. Magazine was born in March 1953. Let me take a look at, and, and I was able to, to, to collect and find like more than 600 magazines from, from that uh -huh. month. And when I look at them, and when I see some of the stuff that they covered, uh, and, and looking like a year before, a year after, and I mean, there was a cover story on a magazine from 1952 uh, called Focus about like, why the Russians are interfering with our presidential election. Oh, wow. I mean, this is 1952. I mean, uh, and then, of course, like you saw the ones that you mentioned that I posted on, on the um, blog about like, let's tell the truth. I mean, from 1918. Or uh, let's move from uh, us, uh, from, from me to us, from 1916. I mean, all these topics you hear today. I mean, you hear yeah. like, folks, I mean, have we learned anything or we are just like history is repeating itself and repeating itself. And, and, uh, and the, the beauty of all of this is that the art of storytelling, the art of magazine ship, I mean, putting a magazine together is still an experience. That's what I tell people. And when people say, oh, you're not a big believer on like magazines online and this, and I said, no, because a magazine is an experience. Is a magazine is much more than content, and 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 if we are only in the content providing business, we would have been dead long time ago. But a magazine as a whole, the art of putting the magazine all together, is the art of experience making. And if you cannot create an experience with your magazine, you are not going to be in this business for long. Do you think that's why last year was such a big year for magazine subscriptions and, and ultimately magazine sales, that there were so few experiences otherwise? One, there were very few experiences. And two, most of the experiences that people were subjected to were negative experiences. Mm -hmm. We were bombarded by bad news on our television screens or our mobile phones. I mean, we had the pandemic, then we had the social unrest, then we had the killing of George Floyd, then we had... So everything that was coming our way was bombardment of negative, depressing information. Mm -hmm. And there comes the magazine in your mailbox. There comes the magazine on the newsstand saying like, you know, cheer up. Life can still be good. Make this recipe. Relax a little bit. Read this piece of fiction. Uh, have fun. I mean, it's all positive, and that's that's the the thing that was so important for for the 
great editors and successful magazine folks is that they did not deviate from the mission of their magazine. I mean, uh, I spoke with one publisher um, for the Old Farmer's Almanac, the magazine that has been published for more than 200 years. And she told me, said, Samir, I mean, we had we lived through like the pandemic of 1918. We lived through the civil war in this country. We lived through this, 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 not she personally, but the, the, the publication, <laughs> but we never deviated from our focus in the magazine. I mean, you are not going to find articles about the civil war. I mean, we leave that to the newspapers. Uh, mm-hmm. Same thing with the with the pandemic now. We leave it to, to the digital media or to the, you are going to find what the magazine promised you when you subscribe to that magazine, that this is the experience. You are going to find forecasting about the weather. You are going to find good farming things. You are going to find good stories, good uplifting things. So this is something that, good editors even during a pandemic and during social unrest want to remain to stay the course and and that's what i've learned from all the interviews i did last year i mean the the one common theme among all of them were stay the course stay true to your audience stay true to that agreement that you had with the audience that what we promised you when you subscribe when you invited us to your home we promise you we are going to deliver A, B, and C, and we are delivering A, B, and C. We are not deviating from that. I know you did quite a lot of work last year around Black Lives Matter and the diversity that was being brought into magazines. Looking back, uh, I guess looking forward also, do you think there was a real change? It was a major, major change. I mean, when, when, when all of a sudden, I mean, after the killing of George Floyd, and, and after uh, I read uh, a piece uh, in, in one of the uh, UK magazine, Love magazine, that is actually coming to the United States now, uh, about this awakening that, that because we were uh, stay at home, because we were fixated with the television screens, uh, all of a sudden that video of the killing of George Floyd, the eight minutes and and, and uh, fifty two seconds. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, there was an awakening uh, in the magazine uh, field, and all of a sudden they discovered that you know we've really not been mainstream. Uh, we've been a magazine that did not uh, cover all of the races everywhere, uh, whether they are like black, Hispanic, you name it. But mainly it was the celebration of the blackness that appeared like never before in the history of magazines. I mean, I have so far, just from the last six months of 2020, 336 magazines that have black subjects on their covers. This is almost five times more than we had in the last century combined. I mean, this is, it's an amazing, magazines that have never had a black subject on the cover. I mean, this is, this is an amazing, amazing change where we see that we're truly now going mainstream. And, and uh, some may say like we are probably uh, overcompensating, uh, but to me, there's no such thing as overcompensating because, mm-hmm. 
people who buy magazines, they buy them for the experience. And where it used to be, I mean, I used to be, uh, editors used to tell me if we put a black subject on the cover of the magazine, our sales will go down. Those were the days where magazines were cheap. Those were the days where magazines were more like an impulse buy because they are only like a dollar or 95 cents. And, and, and just like I'm buying my groceries and I want to pick up this magazine. Now, buying a magazine is an intentional because the average cover price of a magazine now is almost $8, with mm-hmm. some magazines reaching as high as $30. You are not going on an impulse to buy a magazine and pay $30 for the <sighs> cover price. So the cover is not as essential. It's still a conversation starter, but it's not going to make or break your magazine because you are buying it for the content. And that's where this, that's the major shift that we are starting to see is that now we are in the business of selling our content to our audience, not selling our audience to our advertiser because (sighs) the business model is changing. I mean, advertisers have now so many platforms to reach, including direct reach. I mean, I get direct messages from people who want to reach me. They don't need a magazine to reach me. But when I go and buy the magazine, I mean, I'm buying it for its content, uh, uh, the content that is vetted, curated, uh, fact-checked, that that when I have the magazines in my hand, I'm saying like, wow, look at those people. They've done so much work for me to save me time, to save me energy, to save me time, and, and to give me this me time that now I can sit down, relax, and forget about everything else that's taking place. Do you think that the editors and the publishers of these magazines looking back are thinking well there was no commercial imperative now what they're looking at is a social imperative do you think it last because of that i guess a kind of lack of commercial imperative even when i did my dissertation at the university of missouri back in in 1983 uh i talked about the role magazines play in in any country i mean there's the 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 commercial role i mean there are a money-making business. If you are not making money, you are going to go out of business. And there are a marketing tool, uh, marketing for you know advertisers, for goods, for products, you name it. But there's also an important social role that the magazines play, which is either educational role, informational role, uh, reflector of society, and initiator to society. Magazines used to initiate a lot of stuff. There were always also literature purveyors. I mean, uh, who would have known about Ernest Hemingway if it was not for The Old Man in the Sea in Life magazine? Uh, I mean, even this month, Wired magazine, their February issue, just came out with an entire novel uh, about the next war of 2034. The entire issue of the magazine is one story, one novel which is, again, reminding us of the role magazines played. Back in the 60s, after the assassination of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., Esquire magazine led the campaign to ban gun advertising because of the violence that's taking place. But we've never seen a big, massive change in the social responsibility role of magazines as the one that we've seen started starting in June of 2020. 
and still continuing. And and mm-hmm. and and mean ma- magazines all of a sudden are listening more to their audiences and to their readers because they are going to be the major source of revenue. I mean, look at what happened with Vogue, uh, with the Kamala Harris, with our vice president on the cover of Vogue. When 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 the social media erupted that that's not a a good cover that's that not the great picture that and Vogue was forced to go back to print and put the digital cover also on a print edition. I mean, of course, they are going to make a lot of money uh, from selling both covers, but again, uh, we we are witnessing this this massive change where. Uh, magazine editors and publishers have their ears to the to the masses now, rather than like I am the editor and I can do anything I want to do. And if you don't like it, tough. Do you think in that sense that's where digital media is changing print media? What's the best thing that digital media have done is that it helped the audience directly tell the editors their feeling even before the magazine hits the stands. I mean. Uh, once they see that cover on the the website or they see that cover on 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 social media i mean people are voicing their opinions people love to 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 give the f- immediate instant feedback and we live in an age of instant feedback and that's the that's the the the, the danger and the the uh the beauty i mean it's like a sword with two edges uh, uh it's like on one hand yeah i i'm i'm listening to you and on the other hand you can have a very vocal minority that will also derail your job and derail what you are doing as an editor. Uh, that's why uh, uh, one time I was in uh, Bratislava uh, and, and um, the editor of the paper there uh, told me that he came up with this genius, what I thought was a genius idea, that you can access all our content for free on the web, but if you want to comment, you have to pay a euro. So you have to pay for every comment and knowing how much people loves to run their mouths and say stuff. And, and so they were making more money from the comments than from actually selling the content. Do you think that editors and well, particularly editors, but also publishers have a, a difficult line to draw in on one hand, listening to the audience, but on the other hand, leading the audience and being tastemakers? The, the era of those celebrity editors, is reaching an end. I think we have very few celebrity editors left. We are seeing a big major return to the brand as the influencer rather than the person behind the brand. Uh, Take an example of uh, if you read anything in The Economist, can you ever tell me who wrote that thing or you are going to tell me I read this in The Economist? There's no bylines. Uh, same thing with Better Home and Gardens. Same thing. I mean, there was a lot of, of magazines that uh, were based on selling their brand and presenting their brand as the human side. I mean, as that ink on paper is the human coming to visit you and engage with you in a conversation. You are not going to say, so-and-so wrote this article in The Economist or so-and-so wrote this article in Bon Appetit, you are going to say that, you know, I read this in Food and Wine and all of a sudden, like, wow. 
And, and we are going to start seeing that the more the celebrity editors take a step back, and, 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 and this is the major difference between now and, and, and what we've seen in like the 90s and where editors became bigger names than the magazines themselves, whether folks that were writing for Time magazine, Newsweek, Farid Zakaria, I mean, Joe Meacham, all these people who became bigger than the brand did not help the case for mm -hmm. magazines as experience makers. We are going to see this return to the magazine as the experience maker and to the brand as your influencer friend. That's not only reflecting what you are doing, listening to what you are doing, but also helping you, guiding you, setting the roadmap for you as you move forward. So looking at last year and looking forward, you still as optimistic as you were about print? I am more optimistic because when I hear that the established magazines uh, almost was no exception, have witnessed an increase of 25-30% in subscriptions and people using digital and direct marketing to order more magazines. That gives me hope for also the multitude of, of newcomers to the field. And technology had made it so easy to launch a new magazine uh, because uh, I mean, it used to be if you are going to do a magazine with less than 10,000 copies, the printer will throw you out. He said like, oh, we, we can't do anything less than 10,000 copies. Now I'm getting first editions with 500 copies, limited yeah. edition of 500 copies. So, I mean, technology has made it possible for anyone who can afford uh, some money to publish a magazine can actually publish the magazine. And that's why we are seeing a lot of the new magazines are coming from folks who've never published a magazine before. I mean, still you have companies like Meredith launched a lot of magazines last year during the pandemic and continue to do so. But also we've seen a lot of magazines coming from individual entrepreneurs who, who, who feel like, you know, I have an idea to share. I have an experience I want to share and I'm going to do it. Uh, what, we are going to see in 2021. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I'll use my traditional uh, talk about the future where only two people can tell you the future, God and a fool. Uh, and I know I am neither God nor hopefully I'm not a fool, but we are going to see more magazines. We are going to see more specialized magazines, more niche titles that aimed at a very, very specific uh, aspect of every part of our daily living. And the other reason I believe uh, that we are going to see a good return to print because the freedom of the press, the freedom of speech belongs to those who own the press, as A.J. Lepling once said. When you put all your eggs in one basket and you don't own the basket, i.e. social media, i.e. Twitter, Facebook, you name it, if they decide to pull the plug, you have no protection. You're gone. But if you own a magazine and publish a magazine, it's yours, that sense of ownership, which is to me one of the three ships that cruise through all human beings. That sense of ownership is one major aspect. And then you have the sense of membership that, you know, this is like the membership card that you are going to to get every month or every week. It's a reminder that you belong to this community. And then showmanship. I mean, we love to show things. I mean, nobody is going to come to my house 
and say, oh, Samir, show me your iPad. What are you reading? But they are going to look at my magazines on my coffee table and say, oh, wow, can I? I mean, they don't even say, can I pick it up? They will pick it up where nobody is going to touch my iPhone or my iPad and say, hey, let me see what you are reading. So, yeah. so, so those three ships, ownership, membership, and showmanship, is what gives me hope that we will always have print. We will always have that physical attraction. And, and, and you know, I joke with my students the whole time. I tell them, you can have as many virtual girlfriends and boyfriends as you want. But until you try the real thing, trust me, it ain't the same. Okay, so I'm going to ask you the impossible question. What is your favorite magazine? You know, as I started, I told you, I mean, I'm the man who loves magazine. And magazines to me are like my children. I will never tell you which child I love more than the other because I love all my kids the same. However, any time I get my hands on a volume one, number one, that's my favorite magazine for that moment. So I have a lot of one night stands with volume one, number ones that I enjoy and cherish until the second one comes along. So thank you very much for listening to Media Voices this week. Please do tell anybody who you think might like a weekly news media roundup to listen to and do head over to our Ko-Fi page, which is ko-fi.com slash media voices if you want to throw us some money to cover our operating costs. And if you're desperate for more Media Voices content, and who wouldn't be, sign up to our daily newsletter. It contains four of the most important media stories of the day as curated by us and a link to the latest episode. So you can sign up to that by going to voices.media and while you're on the internet you may as well go to publisherpodcastawards.com to check out the shortlist for our 2021 Publisher Podcast Awards. Unbelievable quality of entries yep. this year. You want to check them out, if, even if it's just for some podcast recommendations. You can also buy some tickets on there. We are trialing that pay-what-you-will system this year, so we're going to be very interested to see how that shakes out. Yeah, some amazing names in there. Amazing. And it's not too late to download our Media Moment 2020 report, rounding up the key event for that with chaos of <laughs> 2020. Uh, more importantly, I guess, where our publisher's priority is going to be this year, which will hopefully be a more normal year. Go to voices.media and you can download it from the homepage. But yeah, thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Media Voices. Uh, please do come back again next week when we're going to have another tour through all the media news from that week and another fantastic guest to provide us with some insights into their own publishing strategy. But thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Stay safe. Bye.